microplastics and nanoplastic pollution are currently blanketing the planet. They are in the air we breathe, the food we eat, and water we drink, infiltrating our bodies and even brains and human embryos. Coca-Cola alone sells over 100 billion single-use plastic bottles each year, ending up in landfills and our oceans. Earth's population will reach 9.8 billion people by 2050. Two-thirds of humans will become city dwellers. Our waste will drive a mounting worldwide crisis. These are highlights from our interview with Kathleen Rogers, the president of EarthDay.org. The full episode will be published next week. This podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. Just to give you sort of where we are, sort of a, a picture on the ground. I have a lot of friends in the industry. Once you live and work in Washington, D.C., you sort of meet everyone. The lobbyists live down the street and the environmentalists live next door, whatever. And so Washington's a company town in that regard. I think the way I'd answer the question on the health is to start by talking about what we know from history and whether it's tobacco or climate change or the role of chemicals in Roundup. And we all know from a long history of working in this movement that companies, even governments, lie, hide, conceal, obfuscate data that they collect about a particular product or chemicals that they're making. And so we have literally histories littered with dozens of stories and court cases of malfeasance where companies knew for years before we did, the public, about impacts. And climate change is a perfect one um, because we know Exxon scientists knew in 1957 that burning fossil fuels was creating climate change and that eventually that temperature of the planet would heat up and they hid it from us for 50 plus years. And more and more reports are coming out every day about what companies, and again, as I said, some governments know. And tobacco, it's not in the environmental world necessarily, but the tobacco companies knew tobacco caused cancer for decades before our scientists did. And so we have the same problem with plastics. What Earth Day is, is a broad education. Yes, we get involved in lobbying or litigation occasionally and rulemaking and regulations and support them. But we do a whole lot of education. And what we're seeing, and so one of the things we did for this Earth Day, and we published it about a month ago called Babies Versus Plastics, is a collection of studies around the impacts on our health. And we particularly focused on babies and children because as they grow, their bodies and brains are more impacted by chemicals than full-grown adults. From their growth to mental health to brain development, you name it, they're impacted by just 30,000 chemicals that assault us every day. Well, we started looking at the research and we know one thing about scientists and that is they don't waste time. They are there and their entire lives are caught up, most scientists, the vast majority of scientists, in proving something that they're studying. They're not there to waste time. They wouldn't get grants if they were doing projects that weren't critically important. Governments not-for-profits, foundations are pouring money and have been actually for the last 10 years, but we're starting to see the results of that into the research of plastics in our bodies. We knew plastics polluted the ocean. We knew our wildlife was drowning and eating it and that we were eating it. But now we can actually see visually how microplastics and nanoplastics are entering our bloodstream, are sticking to our major organs. And from Alzheimer's to autism, there's a causation issue, there's a link issue, all of which, tragically for us, because there's so much plastic in the world, is increasingly looking like it is 
not just detrimental to our human health, but deadly to our health. And so Earth Day is collecting that data. Again, we're not a research organization, but we're collecting data from all over the world on the impacts of plastic. And the jury is in. There is so much damaging data. And so we're deeply involved in educating people about the data, connecting the links between plastics and actual diseases through these studies that we're not producing, just reading and assessing. But we're also moving increasingly towards what many organizations did to the tobacco industry, which is demanding that the plastics industry, the oil producing industry, tell us what they know. Because if there's anything I know about the history of chemical production and tobacco and climate change is that companies are way ahead of us. They're always looking down the road for what kind of impediments there could be to making money from their product. So they often study outcomes and impacts of their products, chemicals, et cetera, long before federal governments get involved or individual research agencies or universities. But now we're seeing this info pour in from around the world. So we are beginning a long process, along with many other groups, of making sure that industry come clean and tell us what they know about the impacts of plastics on human health. Well, the interesting thing about media and communications in general, though I'm sure we'd all have a lot to say about how bad it is for all of us, our children and everything else, and for how we all get along, it's an extraordinarily damaging thing. The good side of all this communication and the availability of data is that it's actually, and the openness of negotiations is that we know exactly who the bad players and bad actors are. And industry has, they don't have a foot in the door. They have their entire bodies and legions of bodies in the door actively negotiating against any inclusion of, of many pieces of the plastic treaty from reduction in production to outlawing single-use plastic to requiring what we call the cautionary principle, uh, which is well-known in the law, which is you really should not put anything in the open market that you're not 100% sure is not going to affect human health or health of any species on the planet. And so we have not only the U.S. negotiating against the EU and the rest of the world, but we have all the oil producing countries actively negotiating. And then there's this, no other way to describe it. When you go into the room, it's the oil industry, the U.S. government, and a bunch of other oil producing countries all on one side of the room. And so I think we're beginning a period, it might be a really long period, unfortunately, of before we see true progress and a banning of plastics altogether. Now, don't get me wrong, in the medical field, plastics has been incredibly helpful. They used to use glass or some other kind of piping, all sorts of things that plastic has made it much easier in the medical field. However, anytime plastic heats up at all, nanoparticles are going into your bloodstream and whether it's our food or the air we breathe or medical instruments, et cetera, et cetera. And there's a giant list. It's accumulating in our brain. There's one study about Alzheimer's that shows the extraordinary imaging of brains that the person may have been developing Alzheimer's for some other reason, but their sections of their brain are just coated in plastic. And so the impacts, the progression of disease, all of these things, we still haven't hit the mark. So I don't want to say we've proved definitively that plastic is killing all of us. The studies are getting very scarily close to that. And so we're demanding the plastic industry tell us what they know. Eventually, they're going to have to. But pushing the U.S. government, my own government, to go out in the right direction has been incredibly difficult. And on that, sadly, we're not making a lot of progress. Well. 
education is what Earth Day does. We do other things, but education's at our core. And one of the big things we've been pushing is climate literacy. And we aren't just pushing climate literacy on the science. That's at the bottom of where we begin. That's the baseline. But what we really care about is putting, as I said before, human beings to work on all of our problems. And because climate change is just so big, whether it impacts everything from our psychology to our physical health, to the way we travel, the way we see the world and what's left of it. That's one of the great tragedies is, you know, species extinction. And all of those things need to be part of our education, not because the negative part of it is not the most important part for me at all. For me, it climate change, not plastic, but climate change, it could be one of the greatest things to use an expression since sliced bread. It gives us a chance to reimagine the world in a way that every single human being can participate in. And so whether you're in a remote part of the United States or some other country, when you learn about climate change, it shouldn't just be the science, it should be the opportunity. And the second part of Earth Day's big campaign globally is that it's got to be about jobs. So we've joined with, we have over 235 million union members signed on to our global petitions for climate education. We have 65 million teachers signed on, um, not individually, but as part of their unions and other groups. We have governments left and right now understanding the connection between their ability to participate in the green economy and educating their population now. Again, not just because they want them to know the science of climate change. It's not that hard. You know, you've basically built an incredible umbrella around the planet when you burn fossil fuels and it's making the place really hot. And so that's the science, but the opportunity is really important. So we believe that climate education should be in every class from art to gym class to whatever. And we're not alone. Countries around the world are jumping in on this because they want to make climate change and all of the possibilities of solving it and creating jobs for the future for their own countries and their own states and their own communities, that they're recognized the connection between climate education, jobs, entrepreneurism, innovation, invention. And that is, it's a really exciting time in an otherwise fairly quiet field education. It's almost always has the lowest budget in every country. But climate change education is beginning to have a, an impact. Students want it. Teachers want to be competent in it. Companies want climate-educated people because 85% of innovation comes from inside companies, not outside them. And so they want to employ them. And we're going to artists, architects, psychologists, doctors, and they're all getting into the act. Harvard Medical School is requiring competency in climate change-related diseases because we're seeing changes in the medical field. We're seeing diseases we've never seen before. We're seeing all sorts of things. They want their students, the cream of the crop, to be ready and prepared. And so we're starting to see it in music, architecture, everywhere, psychology, these fields that you wouldn't necessarily think were going to be first in line. You think engineers and other scientists would be, and they are as well, but we're also seeing it in the humanities, in medicine, and other areas where education around climate change and its possibilities, both bad and good, are being explored in curricula. So New Jersey even actually does have it in their gym class. I haven't quite figured out how they do it, but it's part of the whole field of both science and creative thinking that's all being wrapped into one. So it's a very exciting time. It's also a matter of resources. Who's going to pay for all this? It's Nobody's actually put a price tag on what it would take to educate every kid in the world on climate change. And 
to make them, to turn them into little innovators and inventors. But that's what needs to happen. So we're in the process of trying to figure out what all this is going to cost. But in the meantime, you know, half a dozen U.S. states are doing this. There are about half a dozen states that won't teach climate change at all. So those states will be left behind because they're just not going to produce the same kind of creative thinkers that states that are on top of this will. That's always been the case when you're in the vanguard and you're afraid of progress. But we're seeing the changes and it's super exciting. And again, it's going to take decades, but we will get there. We hope you've enjoyed this program and listening to the highlights of this podcast. If you'd like to get involved in One Planet Podcast or learn more about environmental projects, click on the subscribe button. Thank you for listening.